If you would, please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 11 of the Gospel of John 15. And we're technically back into our series through the book of Philippians after uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. Even though we're not technically in the book of Philippians this morning, but we are talking about the, a, a theme that, is, that comes out of the, the book of Philippians, a very, a very um, recurring or prominent theme in the book of Philippians, that's the theme of joy. So kind of doing an aside or an excursus on Christian joy this morning, and for that we're reading John 15 verses 1 through 11. up in John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would give us joy this morning. The joy that Jesus has, Lord, give us that same joy. Help us to delight in Christ as we think about this theme of joy this morning. And help us to be a people on the pursuit of joy that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And may you see fit, Lord, to not only use our time of prayer, our time of singing worship to you, but also this time of sitting under your word, all to the purposes of increasing our joy for your eternal glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The... Mathematician, theologian Blaise Pascal once said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Kind of a bleak way to start a sermon on joy, isn't it? 
he continues, he writes elsewhere, there was once in man a true happiness of which there now remain in him or remain to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. I owe such a huge debt of gratitude to men like John Piper and Jonathan Edwards for really expounding a big God theology, that is God being for his own glory, God pursuing his own glory, that everything that God does from the creation of the world to the salvation of man, he does ultimately for his own glory. The scriptures even tell us when he's talking about, when it's talking about specifically the salvation of Israel, the Lord says, for my own sake, for my own sake do I do it. How shall my name be profaned among the earth? So I am absolutely convinced that probably one of the greatest themes in all the Bible is God pursuing his own glory, and he is worthy of all his glory. But I also agree with Blaise Pascal that all men do seek happiness, and it is not wrong to seek happiness. But if it's true that all men seek happiness, and only God can uh, can fill this infinite abyss of his heart, and if God is pursuing his own glory, does, that, does it then mean that God means to, pers- to, to fill the, the, the emptiness of our hearts, namely for his own glory? Is that ultimately what God is after? And filling our hearts with what cannot be filled by anything else. So while God certainly does care for his own glory, my aim this morning is to convince you that God also cares about your joy. And that God's pursuit of his own glory and God's pursuit of your joy are not these two things that are opposed to one another. But God can actively pursue his own glory while also at the same time pursuing your joy. So the first question I think we need to ask is, well, does God really care about my joy? And I think we find the answer to that in our passage this morning, in John 15, verses 1 through 11. The main imperative, and I'm not going to give a... The whole sermon won't be based on John 15 11, but to help us understand God's concern for joy. But the main imperative here in John 15 is the word abide. That's the main command. Abide in me, Jesus says. Abide in my words. Abide in my love. Abide in the vine. That's the main command of the passage, the main thrust of the passage. And to help us understand what Jesus means by this word abide, he gives us an illustration of a branch abiding in the vine. That the branch, apart from the vine, being attached or abiding in the vine, cannot bear fruit by itself. Now, we're not talking about some kind of attachment, like attaching Lego pieces to build whatever it, is, whatever it is. We're not talking about putting pieces of a furniture together to build a, a bookshelf. But when Jesus says the word abide, he means something much more intimate than attachment. He's talking about something organic. It's like a finger that is attached to your hand. If you were to cut off the finger, well, then it would die. 
right? I cannot live apart from being attached to the hand, which is attached to the arm, which ultimately is attached to the rest of the body. And Jesus says, apart from being attached or abiding in the vine, well, then you are dead. And Jesus helps us to understand what he means by this word vine, abide, by he's telling us to abide in his words. So he says, if the words, if his words remain in us, if they abide in us, and what it means, again, it's a kind of like an organic kind of way of, of abiding in his words, that his words have to be in us, that his words have to be driving everything that we do, driving our very lives, that his words become a part of our genetic makeup, a part of our DNA, that his words are living and breathing in us is what Jesus is getting at. That if his words are abiding in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we'll get back to that later on. Now notice that Jesus also says that God is glorified in your bearing much fruit. By this, my Father is glorified, namely, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And Jesus continues, he says, abide in my love. He says, abide in the vine, abide in my words, abide in my love. Jesus, what does it even mean to abide in you? How do you abide? How do we abide in you? And Jesus answers that question. He says, commandments. If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in me. Keeping the commandments of Jesus is our means of abiding in his love. And keeping his commandments is the same as synonymous to abiding in his words. And Jesus is a perfect example of this because in the Gospel of John, Jesus also says that he does everything to please the Father. And he says, Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, we are called to abide in the love of Jesus Christ by following his commandments, just as Jesus abided in the love of the Father by following the commandments of God the Father. And Jesus ultimately tells us these things in the end of this discourse or this section in verse 11. And the ultimate purpose in telling his disciples these things is so that they may have joy. And not just joy, but joy to the fullest degree. Now, God certainly cares about your holiness. God cares about your bearing much fruit, absolutely. But the passage also seems to tell us that God also cares about your joy. And in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of bearing much fruits to the Lord, that also glorifies God. And this is the joy of the Christian, to be bearing much fruit. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, said, From love arises hatred of those things which are contrary to what we love, or which oppose and thwart us in those things that we delight in. From a vigorous, affectionate, and fervent love to God will necessarily arise other religious affections. Hence will arise an intense hatred and abhorrence of sin, 
fear of sin, and dread of God's displeasure, gratitude to God for his goodness, complacence and joy in God when he is absent, and a joyful hope when a future enjoyment of God is expected, and fervent zeal for the glory of God. For the person who loves God, it is their joy to see God glorified. So knowing that God is concerned for your joy, that makes joy absolutely essential to the Christian life. God wants you to have joy. But in what way is joy necessary for the Christian? How is it necessary? So let's talk about the necessity of joy. The Gospel of John, overall, in the context of his book, speaks pretty sternly about the world. It always paints the world in a terrible picture as that which is absolutely opposed to light, as a, to that which is absolutely opposed to Jesus himself. Now, Jesus, in his final discourse with his disciples, when he's just moments from being arrested and crucified, where he gives them these final teachings and he prays with them. And in this final discourse, he gives us some further descriptions about the world. So Jesus is about to depart out of the world, which includes his everything, his crucifixion, and ultimately his ascension into heaven. But Jesus tells us in this final discourse that at his departure, the world will do two things. One is that the world will rejoice. In other words, the world will have joy in the departure of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the world, at the departure of Jesus Christ, the world will hate his disciples. And so in this discourse, Jesus concludes by praying for his disciples. In John 17, verses 6 through 16, I won't read the entire section, but moving ahead to verse 9 of John 17, this is Jesus praying to God on behalf of his disciples. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So when Jesus says, these things I speak in the world, what he's referring to is everything that he has said thus far in his final discourse to his disciples from the institution of the Last Supper when he's gathered with them in that upper room to his arrest. All of these things, Jesus says, these things I have spoken so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So his purpose in telling his disciples, ultimately telling his church these things is so that his people would have joy. 
The world will rejoice at the absence of Christ. The world will hate his people at the absence of Christ. And so it seems to be that Jesus is telling us these things, that joy is absolutely essential because Christians are not gathered yet with Jesus in heaven, but they are still remaining on earth. And as long as you and I remain on earth, then it is absolutely vital to our Christian walk that we have joy. I mean, to really understand joy, you really have to study the final discourse. I mean, that's at least twice where Jesus says that he's telling us these things so that, he, that his people may have joy. So joy is essential. I want to talk a little bit further about that later on. But as we're talking about joy, well, let's define our terms. What does it mean to have joy? What is joy? According to Hebrews 12.2, it tells us, it points us to Jesus Christ as an, as an example, where it tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus went to the cross knowing the, outside, the, the outcome, right? He saw to the other side of the cross, and it's for the joy that was coming to him, he was able to endure the cross. So joy is defined by an assurance of a future outcome. So what I might call a glorified hopefulness. Not a kind of worldly hopefulness, not like maybe it'll happen. If we cross our fingers, it'll happen maybe, but no. The Christian, there is an assurance of a glorified outcome. And so the Christian has a glorified hopefulness. According to Hebrews 10.32, which says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So according to Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, joy is defined by possessing something of extreme value something of infinite worth, something that you cannot get ever, ever in this world. And namely, that possession is Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure. Paul says in Philippians that he has joy in the gospel, that he has joy in the preaching of the gospel, he has joy in the church, he has joy in Christ. According to John 15, verses 1 through 11, the passage we open up with, joy is defined by relationship. Right? Jesus is commanding us to abide in him and abide by abiding in his words. And abiding in his words means keeping his commandments. And in that way, we will bear much fruit. And he tells us these things so that you and I may have joy. And so joy comes from abiding in the vine. Joy comes from having this intimate and close relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So joy is defined by glorified hopefulness, a glorified possession, and a glorified relationship through Jesus Christ. 
And all these things leads to the glory of God. It is the joy of the branch, namely us, to bear fruit for the glory and the joy of the vine, who is Christ. And it is the joy and the glory of the vine, who is Christ, to have branches that bear much fruit to the glory and the joy of the eternal vine dresser. And it is the joy and the glory of the eternal heavenly vine dresser to have a vine that is bearing much fruit. The joy-filled Christian is a Christian who has a glorified relationship with Christ and in Christ has a glorified possession which produces glorified hopefulness. Again, the joy-filled Christian is a Christian who has a glorified relationship with Christ and in Christ has a glorified possession which produces glorified hopefulness. So God certainly does care about your joy. Now, there's one obvious thing that we have to talk about when we're talking about this topic of joy, something that some might consider an obvious impediment to joy. Some might even consider it an obvious, even enemy, opposer of joy, and that is the problem of suffering. So second, suffering, the opposition of joy. Question mark. Is suffering actually in opposition to joy? Can it impede our joy in the Lord? It can, but it doesn't have to. If you understand the purpose of suffering, James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. James wrote this letter to Christians who are suffering. Obviously, if we could read it in that, first, in that passage, they were being persecuted. So here are these Christians receiving this letter from the brother James and probably thinking, oh, <laughs> we are suffering. I can't wait to see what this brother has to say to us. How can he encourage us? How can he help us as we're suffering for the faith? And James introduces his letter to his greetings and he says, count it all joy. What? Count it all joy, James, when we're suffering? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for or because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when it has a full effect, you'll become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And it's not that you'll achieve that completion or that perfection in this life, but trials, James is telling us, that trials are there for the perfecting of your faith. Romans 5.3, James was talking about, I think, more specifically in the context of trials because of persecution that comes through the faith. Romans, I think, is a little much more broader than that, so suffering, not just on account of suffering for the faith. Romans 5.3 says, not only that, but we rejoice. There's that word joy again in suffering. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering produces endurance. The same word for endurance here in the Greek is the same word that that James uses for his word steadfastness. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. There's a glorified hopefulness and a guaranteed outcome that ultimately will lead to the completion of the inner man. And what's our assurance? The Apostle Paul tells us it comes from the love of God. You do know that the Holy Spirit has been given to you in order to remind you, to affirm to you that you have the love of God abiding in you. That the Holy Spirit is a tangible reminder living inside of you so that when you are suffering, you may be reassured that God has not left you, but God actually still loves you and his love continues to abound to you. It's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.6, again, written to suffering Christians. In this you rejoice. There's that word joy again, the context of suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So resulting in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whose honor and glory and praise? Certainly Jesus Christ is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and we will spend eternity worshiping the Lord because of who he is and all he has done. But in the context of 1 Peter, what Peter is talking about is for your glory and honor and praise. So then we know that the tested genuineness of our faith, which comes to us through the trials and persecutions and sufferings that we endure in this life, ultimately, if one endures to the end, will result in your honor, in your being glorified, in your being praised by the Heavenly Father in heaven. Read Romans chapter 2 as well. It kind of says the same thing. This pursuit of glory and honor by the Christian. So, it, so what we learn about suffering is that God ordains suffering to be educative. Now, we certainly cannot know all the reasons why God allows, permits, or even causes suffering to happen in our life. And by the way, we'll learn more, more about this next week, but one of the reasons why God gives suffering to the Christian is to also assure them that they are children of God. The one thing we do know is that suffering and trials and persecution is all intended to be a means of teaching us. Someone once said that trials enable people to rise above religion to God. Trials enable people to rise above religion to God. You want to know the difference between a truly regenerate, born-again Christian and nominal Christians? Put them both through trials, and you'll see which one is a nominal one and which one is a truly converted Christian. Because a truly born-again Christian is going to endure 
And the one who isn't is going to cave in. It's going to affirm what the world affirms. It's going to live like the rest of the world. So trials are there to be educative, to teach you, to instruct you. Someone also I heard once, and I thought this was really helpful, that joy is being tethered to eternity. The devil's aim in suffering is to cut the cord that severs, that, that, that tethers you to eternity so that you no longer trust in God, so that you no longer confide and hope in God, so that you may no longer seek after God. To, he's intending the suffering to quench the flame of your love for God, to compel you to say that Christ isn't enough. Suffering should not destroy your joy or even leach the life out of it. But suffering can actually become a means of greater joy in Christ. It, becomes a, it can become a greater means of joy as the suffering and languishing soul continues to rest in God, continues to trust in God, continues to put their faith in God, continues to plead to God and ask God for mercy, to ask God for help, to say and cry aloud in the midst of suffering, God, you are more than able, that you are more than enough. It is in those moments where joy can be increased as that suffering soul continues to rest in God. You might even argue that some of the most joyful Christians are probably those who have suffered the most. Because those are the ones who have learned to really press into the kingdom and lean into Jesus Christ in more ways than many of us have ever or maybe will ever experience. Joy is what keeps us tethered to eternity so that we're not giving to hopelessness because of the trials and persecutions and sufferings that we experience in the world. So then, let me conclude by giving you some additional meditations on this topic of joy. I want to go back to its necessity, the essential nature of joy. How necessary or essential is joy to the Christian? Well, we already saw in John 15 that Jesus considers joy to be very essential. So much so that he wants you to have joy and joy to the fullest degree. So that absolutely makes it necessary. According to Hebrews 12, 2, in the example of Jesus, joy is necessary if you are going to endure to the end. Because right? you're not going to endure if there is no hope at the end of the tunnel. Another reason why joy is essential because Galatians tells us it's actually one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, so on and so on and so on. That is, if you are truly born again, if you are abiding in the vine who is Jesus Christ, then you will naturally bear fruit of the Spirit of God, and one of those fruit is joy. Now, here's kind of an interesting reason why joy is essential. The reason why joy is essential is because it's a command. Joy is actually a command. 
And that alone makes it essential to the Christian life. Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. In other words, he says, Have joy. And he says it twice. Have joy, have joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's enough to hear the command once. Paul says it in one verse twice. But if you happen to need more convincing, what if I told you that the command to have joy is one of the most repeated commands in all of the Bible? In fact, I counted. It's around 88 times that the Bible commands all of his people to have joy in the Lord. Have joy, have joy. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. 88 times, and probably a little bit more than that. 88 times in the Bible, you are commanded to have joy in the Lord. Now, here's an interesting question. Can you actually command somebody to have joy? Can you actually do that? I mean, can I command you, hey, have joy. Hey, be happy. Hey, rejoice in the Lord. Can I actually command you to do that? And the question, and the answer is, absolutely. You can command someone to have joy, especially if the object of joy is worthy of delighting in. If I take my kids to Disney World, and I tell them, go, rejoice, be happy, enjoy yourselves, have a great time. Not only is that a command easy to follow, but they should because I have given all this time and energy and resources to provide them with this opportunity to have joy or to enjoy enjoy this temporary happiness. But if they were to turn around and say, you know, Dad, I I don't really care for this. I don't think this is really fun. I'd rather go back to the hotel room and watch television, not only is that absolutely absurd, but it's also dishonoring. Like, I have given so much to provide you with this experience, with this opportunity. It might even make me angry to say that you would rather sit in a hotel room watching television than to have this joyful experience. God has given us everything. He has sent his son into the world, who came into the world, lived a sinless, perfect, righteous life, died on the cross for the sins of his people, rose again from the dead, so that if anybody places their faith and trust upon Jesus, they may be saved and may be spared of the judgment of God and receive eternal life and including all the wonderful and amazing treasures that there's found in Jesus Christ. And so it is absolutely dishonoring to God when people instead desire to place their joy and happiness and find contentment in other things that don't compare to the infinite worth and value of Jesus Christ. And so absolutely God can command you and me to rejoice in the Lord. Right? And for the Christian who loves the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength, that is a command that is easy to follow. Like, God, you can command me all day long to have joy in the Lord. I will have joy in the Lord. 
because he is my delight, because he is my greatest treasure. The only people in the world that should have, a trouble, that should have trouble following this command are unbelievers because they don't love Jesus. Jonathan Edwards says, a man must first love God or have his heart united to him before he will esteem God's good his own and before he will desire the glorifying and enjoying of God as his happiness. That the scriptures command us to have happiness in God makes happiness in God or joy in God absolutely essential. And happiness in God glorifies God because it makes God the supreme treasure of your life. Now, when it comes to joy, it certainly can increase or decrease. Right? There are times when our joy has decreased for whatever reason. And the first thing we, have to, we need to understand about that is that the fault never lies upon God. The Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. So his infinite worth is always his infinite worth. And so if we ever have any decrease in our joy in God, the fault lies upon us. In fact, our love for God and our love for Christ should be primarily because of who he is because of his excellency, because of his perfections, because of his attributes, because of who he is primarily and secondarily because of what he has done. Right? In any healthy relationship, right, you love the person primarily because of who they are. But if you love them primarily because of what they can do for you, well, then that's not a very healthy relationship. In fact, it's not even love. So we love God first for who he is, but we also love him for what he has done for us in Christ. And if our joy decreases, the fault lies upon us. And maybe one of the reasons that our joy decreases is because you might be beholding the wrong thing. You delight in what you behold. Whatever has captured your attention, whatever occupies most of your thoughts, whatever it is that you give most of your attention to, is what you delight in. And some of those things are good things, right? like family and friends. And some of those things are distractions. Some of those things are terrible things. And that delight can change depending on what things hold your attention. I can look at a specific car for a week and really like it, like the features, like how it looks. And then the next week, I can find another car that has this and this and that. And that week, that car, I don't really care about anymore. I really like this one. The objects that you can delight in can change from time to time, from week to week, even from day to day. So if you find yourself with a decreased joy in Christ, I would ask, well, then what have you been staring at lately? What's got your attention? What have you been beholding? What has been perhaps distracting you from joy in Christ? Whatever that thing is, it's time to repent. Repentance is continuing to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 29.6 
For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. King Solomon, it tells us in the scriptures, had turned his heart away from God because of the many foreign wives that he married. Repentance is continuing to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And a combatant against joy is sin. Sin promises satisfaction and happiness, but it fails to deliver time and time again. It seeks to turn our face away from Christ. It robs us of the joy to be found in God through Christ. So if you've been staring at sin, it's time to repent and fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Pursue your happiness in the Lord. Pursue your joy in God. George Mueller, as some of you know, he was, had many orphanages, and he never asked for money. He had just prayed to the Lord for provision that God always provided. But George Mueller says this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word and to meditation on it. Have you been in the word? God has given us his word as a primary mean of pursuing him. And if you care about your happiness, and if God is that which is intended to, to fill the infinite abyss of your heart, then pursue your happiness by getting into the word and thinking about the word regularly. I would even encourage you every day and think on the word. What we need today is a combative joy, a joy that will fiercely fight against sin and the world and the temptations of the flesh. Lastly, another means of joy is prayer. If your life is lacking in joy, then I wonder how much you're praying. First John, or not First John, the Gospel of John 16, verse 23 says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, of course, now there is a condition to be met, and that is found in John 15, verses 1 through 11. And that condition is that the words of Christ have to be abiding in you, that you have to be abiding in the vine who is Christ. And that when your life becomes a part of the life of Christ, your life is gradually transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Down to your very desires. The desires of Jesus Christ become your desires as well. If Jesus' desire is for you to be conformed into his image, I think the Bible tells us that, teaches us that, 
then it should be your desire and my desire to also be conformed into his image. And as a Christian who loves the Lord, well, then that is also your delight. And when you are praying the same way that Jesus would have you to pray, then he is more than eager to answer your requests. And it is ultimately for your joy. It's not to say that we cannot ask for anything, other things, but I believe that the Christian's prayer must mostly consist of a prayers or prayers for conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, make me like yourself. I'm praying for other things, right? We don't always get what we ask for. Sometimes we ask for wrong motives. Sometimes we ask for the wrong things. Sometimes God withholds answers. And it might be in part for the testing of your faith. But sometimes we simply don't receive because we just don't ask. And oftentimes when we do pray and we do ask, we don't receive what we're asking because we are not abiding in the vine. God is not interested in answering your prayers if there is no desire in in your heart to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If you're not actively abiding in Jesus Christ. So what we learn from John 16 is that prayer is essential to joy. And when you are abiding in the vine who is Christ and you pray to the Lord, God intends actually to answer your prayer requests so that you may have more joy in the Lord. So prayer is a means of growing in your joy in Christ. So there is joy in God for who he is. There is joy in Christ for what he has done for us. There is joy for those who are born again as he or she witnesses their own life slowly transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So may that be our pursuit the pursuit of joy in Jesus Christ. And our pursuing our joy in Christ and having joy in Christ at the same time glorifies God because God is of supreme worth and value. And so when we delight and have joy in the Lord, that shows, not only affirms to us, but it shows the world that God is our greatest treasure and that he is worthy to be pursued as our greatest treasure and that glorifies him. So you see that God, pursuing his own glory and pursuing your joy, are not two different pursuits, but in a way, they're actually the same thing. They're achieving the same end. So may that be our prayers. May that be our pursuit, the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that that the joy of Christ would rest in our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who could use some more joy in their life, Lord, we pray that you may gift to them greater joy. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know the joy of the Lord, who is cut off from joy in the Lord, God, may you grant them the faith to believe in Jesus so that they may have the joy of the Lord rest in their hearts. Thank you for the joy that is available to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you care for our joy. 
and you mean to give us more joy, and we do pray for that joy. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.